Amen to chocolate-covered coffee beans. I like them. I just don't like coffee. Mark chapter 10, if you would, if you would get there. Uh, turn in your Bibles there while you're doing that. Um, I just want to just share with you a couple explanations um, about what's coming um, with uh, Christmas Eve and a couple messages. Well, probably at least one prior to that. Um, the, submersive, the subversiveness of the term Merry Christmas. We'll be talking about that. And Christmas Eve service is going to come um, as well. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the gift, uh, uh, just the gift of what Christ is and who he is and what that means. Um, but I do want to just uh, just bring a note to you that there's going to be a sermon series called uh, uh, emotional, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, um, beginning in, in uh, January, first Sunday in January. So I want to encourage you. Um, I know it's not um, always joyful for everybody this time of year. And there's reasons for that. And I'd like to explore some of that. And that leads up to um, a seminar of a good friend of mine. His name is Bob Johnson. He's going to come and share the last weekend in uh, January. He does a class. It, it, it's a class he's developed um, years ago, um, but he's going to bring it here for a weekend. So it's called Out of the Darkness, a Biblical Plan for Overcoming Depression. And so whether you struggle with those things or know someone who does, I uh, want to encourage you to consider uh, participating in that. Uh, if you would, um, and uh, so that's just what's uh, just coming uh, shortly uh, after the holiday season and the Christmas season, this glorious time that we share uh, the birth of a Savior, so I'm um, just looking forward to some of those things. Um, Mark chapter 10, um, we are in um, the last part of Mark chapter 10, heading into uh, uh, Jesus' triumphal entry, but before we get there... Um, Verse 23 to 31 was where we're going to be. But I want to just bring some of your attention to where we've been. Um, I want to emphasize this idea of children because if you go back to Mark, so hold your finger in Mark chapter 10. If you go back to Mark chapter 36 and 39, um, this is kind of where this starts. And you see this progression through this whole thing. Jesus took a child, put him on his lap, and, and blessed them. Um, Whoever receives someone like a child receives a kingdom, is what he's referring to. Whoever receives me, you know, he's receiving the one who sent me. Um, we talked about in, in chapter 10, verse 14, uh, children were coming. Parents were bringing their, their children to Jesus so he would bless them. The disciples were indignant. Remember, the other piece of this is who's the greatest, and children weren't the greatest. And so Jesus is indignant toward his disciples. He says, let the children come to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these. And then I want you to, I just want to point out where we're going to be this morning in chapter 10, verse 24. How Jesus responds to his disciples. So I want to just give you this heads up. His disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children. Now the disciples aren't children. And what I want to make the connection is, is the fact that salvation is what he's referring to. That they are in the kingdom. They are his children. And so you, you get this connection that Jesus is making through this whole thing. From bringing the little children to him, and then inserted in the midst of that, a potential child, the rich young ruler that Garrett talked about last week, that was potentially this idea of, hey, I'm coming to you like this child, but he didn't get there the whole way. He went away sad and sorrowful because he had great possessions. And this is where we pick up in verse 23. Jesus looked around. So there's a crowd, his disciples, all this. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
His disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easy for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to them, they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. What's interesting to me what Jared point, or Garrett pointed out last week is in this conversation Jesus had with this rich young ruler who did not act as a child like he ought. Jesus loved the man. Jesus didn't debate with him. He didn't, he didn't correct his answers he gave to him. He just gave him a command to make sure he understood where he was. And he did not understand that the whole point was to expose who his true God was. And it wasn't Christ. And you get this reference in, in, from verse 22 that he's, he went away sorrowful. If you, Again, you go back to where we've already been. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Um, calling a crowd to him, the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. All through scripture you see that. You can go to Matthew. Uh, I'll do that right now. Matthew 13. Um, Jesus' parables. Uh, Mark doesn't give us... Many of those, if at all, but it's the same idea, the parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. Strange. Sorry, it's a whole other sermon. <laughs> then, in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys the field. That's Jesus' point. So this morning, I just want to kind of finish all this up with four questions this morning in our text. One. Why is Jesus making it so hard to enter the kingdom of heaven? Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Why is he doing that? Why are the disciples so amazed in the response? Why, why is there a, 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 this amazement that they had? And to Peter's request, in essence, I'll shorten it. So Jesus, we did this. What do you get? What, what, what are we getting? So let's start with question one. You're like, oh, wait, I thought you said there were four. Yeah, but that's at the end. So you've got to hang in there with me. <laughs> Why is Jesus making it so hard to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 23 through 25. Jesus points this out. It is how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are amazed. How difficult it is, Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of an eagle. Why is it so hard? Let me just say this. It is not hard. That's Jesus' point. It is impossible to get to the kingdom of God all on your own. You have no means in which, it can't be any more clear than that. There is no means which you and I as human beings can get there. There is nothing that you and I have in and of ourselves that can do anything whatsoever. It is truly an impossibility for you and for me. And so we get Jesus' explanation of this idea of a camel. What is this camel? And I have, I have heard this growing up for a, a number of years, or sermons in, in my lifetime, that 
you know, the, the camels and the, the merchants, you know, they're all loaded up. And, and I mean, it's like the, the SUV of the day, right? <laughs> and the trailer and your camper, and you're trying to get it through, right? And, and if you remember, the, the, the gates were huge. And they didn't just leave the gates open because... You know, they just shut the gates at night. So they would have this little gate, and it was the small thing. And you ha- you're, you're getting their light, and this camel has to get on its knees. They got unloaded all. They're like, Shh. I get this picture of them just ramming this camel through this hole. <laughs> okay, look at and, and there, the inference was, oh, there's this camel gate. Okay, look at There is no such thing as a camel gate in Jerusalem. There never was. There never is. There are smaller gates to go through, but there's nothing like that. It's an idiom. So I believe in the Talmud or some other writings, they don't use the term camel. They use an elephant. It's easier for an elephant to go through an eye of an It's the idea that it is impossible. That's the whole idea. It's impossible. It can't happen. And why is it hard for rich? Why is he picking on the rich? Is he picking on rich people? No. He's just using what just happened as an illustration. But we can infer some things through that. Why is it hard for rich people in some respects, because they live with a sense of false security. The security they have is in what they've accumulated. They lack the desperation, in other words. There's this, I guess this, uh, how should I say, this smug confidence about what they've accomplished. And it's a good thing to accomplish those things, but if that's what you're riding on, it is an impossibility, and that's Jesus' point. There is this complete dependency on themselves for what they've gotten, why they've gotten there, and all of that. And Paul even mentions this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. There is this tendency to be conceited and fixing their hope on uncertain riches, is how Paul describes it to Timothy. Uncertain riches. Now, I don't know if you, you know, read, pay attention to, you know, to what's happening in these United States, but I don't believe it'll be too long before our 33-some-odd trillion debt pushes well past 40. I don't know about you, but I can look back in history and go, hmm, when countries get to this place, I don't know how long it takes, but at some point, it all falls apart. And so that's this idea. If that's what your confidence is in, that's the point he's getting at. But that's where they're at. They're not desperate enough. They're not looking for resources beyond themselves. Secondly, I guess you could say about the rich, they tend to be all about those things. Their viewpoint is just everything that's consumable here. And when you couple with that this notion that there is no God and this life is all there is, then what makes sense? Well, if, if you know, I'm just worm food at the end of all this, well, let me just get as much as I can, right? I mean, that makes logical sense, doesn't it? If there is nothing, if this, the life you are living at this moment and wherever you are in that process is all there is, then get what you can get. Again, Paul makes reference to that. Eat, drink, and be merry. For what? Tomorrow we're dead. We might as well. Or the ones with the most toys wins. My question was, wins what? Paul also, in that same chapter, warned Timothy about the love of money being the roots of all kinds of evil. What are those? Well, it's connected, again, to all the worldly activity that goes on. To use it in every possible means, lawfully and unlawfully. We've done both. To accumulate that money so you, uh, you get just caught up in all the things of this world. 
It's self-gratification. It's self-fulfillment. It, it has this tendency, hey, look, look at me. Look how important I am. I'm somebody. Do you know who I am? I don't know if you've been around people that are of, you know, well beyond me in that respect. But when they walk into a room or they, or they walk into it, whether it's, you know, uh, famous people or uh, of any kind or whatever, when they walk, hey, don't you know who I am? I've seen that in airports. Um, and it's, it's just like, wow, really? I mean, they truly believe that they are above everything else. And that's this idea. Now, I believe you could also find some similar principles by asking another question. Why is it hard, not just for the rich, why is it hard for the proud? Why is it hard for the self-righteous? Why is it hard for the very religious? See, at the root of it all, I believe, is there is no faith in the triune living God. Only faith in something lesser than the almighty, eternal, holy, righteous, just loving God. It is an inferior faith in a God in something that has been created by themselves for themselves. And the key is Mark again, 29, or uh, back in the last chapter, Mark 9, 23. Uh, Jesus looked around how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's verse 10. Sorry, if I go back to, if I turn the page, there we go. <laughs> Jesus said to them, if you, uh, if you love all, uh, if you can't, uh, uh, wait a minute. Uh, Jesus said to him, He's asking, he's responding to the, guy, the, the man who brought his son to him. If you can, all things are possible to one who believes. That's the point. Jesus is asking, what do you mean if you can? I'm God. I can do it. If you can, what God are you believing in? If it's not me, what are you believing in? You're believing in something. Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he's the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. You see the importance of that? The urgency? And just like the rich young ruler, if your faith, the faith you think you have, isn't 100% certain that God exists, that you trust him for your salvation, and all the things in this life that we call life, because of his life, death, and resurrection, then you have another God. And it matters not to me what your religious activities are because it is all for naught. Matthew 13, 24. Why is it hard? Jesus wants a pure bride. He's not interested in false converts. He wants you and I to be certain of the salvation that you have. No wavering, but this solid certainty in what he's done and how he has saved you. Just like the virgin birth we are about to celebrate, it is the same impossibility. It's the same word that's used there. And just like you or me or any child cannot be born without the seed of an earthly father, so the sinner cannot be born again without the work of the Holy Spirit in him. And that's John chapter 3, 1 John 2, and 1 Peter 3. Taking notes. See, there are people today that would make us think that we can do anything. You can, you can go and do anything, which is a lie. There's some things you can't do, right? I've heard a few of them. I didn't write them down, but you can't lick your elbow. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how you do that. You can't slam a revolving door. I mean, there's certain things that we can't do. But it's so common for us to, to hear, you can do or be anything you want. 
You can accomplish anything you desire. Just believe in yourself. Be all that you can be. Follow your heart. You be you. And all those euphemisms that get thrown around today, which is just honestly completely ridiculous. I guess you can't make your heart stop either. I just thought of that one. Sorry. (laughs) Maybe I can't tickle yourself. I'll just keep moving on. I can be out. Sorry. You can't sneeze with your eyes open, I don't think either. Anyway. The pursuit of all that thinking, that you can do whatever you want, you can be whoever you want, you can pursue all those things. The caveat here is this. In this amazing, wonderful country, guess what? You and I still have the ability to pursue those dreams and things that we can pursue, right? I've been in other countries. I've been in Mexico. I've been to Ukraine. I've been to England. Those are the three countries I've been, especially in Ukraine. They don't have those options. Those options are limited. Extremely smart people. They Free education. They have master's degrees. The, the missionaries, his wife, I mean, just amazingly brilliant. And goes to all through college and has all these degrees. But there's no place for her to use them. You cannot do anything you want. But in this country, it is now defined as doing that as freedom. Redefined basically as self-autonomy. And you can do anything you can think of. When I was in school, I hate to use that phrase, back in my day, (laughs) not that old. We used to call that anarchy. That's how it was defined for me. To think that you could do anything you want. See, the fruit of that theology is being born out in our, in our society today. Moral relativism, which is the enslavement it produces and the division it causes. You can't do anything. But it doesn't stop humanity or man from trying. Have you noticed that? And when it is tried, apart from the nature and character of Jesus Christ, it becomes a false gospel. That's what you're seeing in our culture How do you save things? How do you save the planet? How do you save yourself? Oh, there's oppressed and oppressors now. It's critical race theory. It is a false gospel, but they've got to try something. Why? Because there is no God. There's no means uh, of salvation other than that. So you have to create something else, some other form in which this is good, this is bad, and those powers that be define all of those terms for us. It's not new. It happened in Athens when Paul was traveling through there. All the gods that they had, and there was one plaque sign that said what? To the unknown God. They just had to cover all their bases. And he was zeroed on on that one. Hey, let me tell you about that one. Because all these other ones that you've created, those are false gods. Now, we become too sophisticated to think that we'd have that theology or mythology about other gods. But truly, we're not. We just call it other things. And we are now a God unto ourselves to say, I can do what and however I want. And then we label it certain things. And again, in this case, I believe the current one is critical race theory. It is a false gospel. It offers no forgiveness. It offers no redemption. It offers nothing but division. Always. Here's the second question. Why are the disciples so amazed? Why are they so flabbergasted at Jesus' response to the question that it is impossible for, the, for you to enter the kingdom of heaven? Aside from Jesus Christ wanting you to be certain in your salvation so you're not going through this life on eggshells questioning whether you're in whether you're not, they're amazed. 
Well, that's informative. Some, I mean, there's a reason why they would be amazed. Why would they respond this way? This way? When, when I read that, I have a little note in my notes. Um, I love my grandchildren, of course, and my oldest one asked all these questions. Grandpa, what was it like for you growing up? And blah, what did you think? What did you watch? And that kind of thing. And I, and I don't know how it happened, but somehow we got on the Muppets. <laughs> and, and, and so when I came across this, now every time I read this, I think of the Muppets. Because when Fozzie Bear comes out, he has all these jokes, you know. And so when you ask, you know, a question, you know, something about, it is hard to enter the kingdom of, Kev- of heaven. What's the, what's the question? From the audience. How hard is it? <laughs> so now he's bringing up all these YouTube videos of the Muppets. It just cracks me up. So I'll give you an example. Do you know how hard it is to organize a space party? Oh, thank you. There's some of you. There we go. How hard is it? You got to plan it. it. Yeah, it's like that. And the disciples are just so confounded by this. What? What do you mean it's hard? Jesus, what are you talking about? They're amazed by this response. Because it was the religious who, by and large, were the wealthy in that time and frame. Just like the rich young ruler we're walking away from now, that they're on the road walking from, and he left. The theological connection, connection was this, that they had money, the rich had money because God had blessed them. And the poor, well, sorry, God's not blessing you. The same can be true if you're healthy. You have your health, hey, good on you. God's, God's on your side. But if you're sick, mm, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. That's this idea. And you can see this going all the way back if you have the wherewithal to read the book of Job. It's permeated in the theology that they had in their day. There was no real understanding of God's sovereignty, such as Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And the more material blessings that flowed, the more God was pleased with you. And up the spiritual ladder you would climb. So I'll ask the question, what's wrong with that theology? And I'm hoping over these last number of years, if I've done my job well, you know the answer to that. But I'll just say this. It is a man-centered theology. It makes you and me the center of it all. I must have done something good. It's funny because um, Mike, as he's come, you know, coming this, this morning um, playing guitar and whatnot, I just have this thing. Life's a song. You can say things and all of a sudden, right, pops into your head. What pops into my head? Sound of music. I must have done something good. <laughs> right? It's this man-centeredness that, oh, look at me. Look what I've done. I'm good, just like the rich young ruler we're walking away from. I've kept all those commandments from my youth. I must have done something good. Listen, it's a gospel, not of grace, but of works, so that you can boast. It is the very antithesis of what Paul's explanation of in Ephesians 2 about grace, that you and I have zero. It is an impossibility for you to get God's grace. It is all his energy to you. Part of that teaching comes from the Talmud. I should have paid more attention to this, but I'll just give you a couple examples. It's this, quote, Almsgiving is, an ex- is, is more excellent than all offerings and is equal to the law. Did you hear that? 
almsgiving is more excellent than all offerings and is equal to the whole law. What's the point? Hey, give money and you're good. You've kept the law. Wow. How about this one? It's good to do alms rather than uh, treasure up gold and silver that deliver you from death, and this will purge away every sin. Where does righteousness come from in that scenario? Where does the delivery of your sin come from? Where does the delivery from death, sin, and hell come from? What does Scripture say in Psalms 120? Look up. Well, it's not looking up. It's looking here. Look to you. You can do it. It's all up to you. They thought you could buy your way into the kingdom so you can understand their amazement and to know that if a rich person can't do it, what are they thinking? We're not rich. Oh, my word. I mean, we're so far down the hole at this end then. What's the possibility for us? So Peter is processing this so fast. He's getting it. There is no hope. And here comes question number three. Verse 28. What do we get, Jesus? Peter began to say to him, see, he's reminding Jesus, as if God needs to be reminded of anything. <laughs> see, we have left everything and followed you. Hey, Jesus, we did everything you asked us to do. We did the exact, you asked this, the rich young ruler, but we did that. He walked away. What do we get? We've given up all to follow you. And Jesus, in his loving kindness, obliges with an answer in verse 29 and 30. So you think you left it all? See, again, you're thinking all in human terms. In part because that's all we know how to think of sometimes. But you're not thinking in whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy. You're not thinking that. You're just thinking like the rich young ruler and all the stuff of the earth. That's what you're thinking. And Jesus is like, really? What is he saying? If you left everything for my sake, the sake of the gospel, if you've done that, notice the multiplier. What's the multiplier? 100. I would say if you were going to invest money in the stock exchange or wherever you invest your money, if someone said to you, hey, I can guarantee you 100, a multiplier by 100, what would you do? I'm all in. <laughs> right? I, seriously, you can, you can do that by 100? Okay, let's do that. What do I got to do? Here's what Jesus says to them. Let me tell you what you get. Three categories. Here's the first one. They're, they're in verses 29 and 30. One is the present age, the church age. What does Jesus say? How does it, how does it read? Truly, I'll go back up to 29. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Verse 30, who will not receive 100-fold? Now, in this time, so we're talking about the present age, the reality in which they are living in, the reality in which you and I are living in, in this case, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. What's he referring to? You have become part of God's kingdom. 
Now, they didn't know this yet, but their life was going to change after the Pentecost. And they were going to end up with so much more family members. And those family members that you are going to now inherit because they are also part of the kingdom of God will provide for you, will support you, will see you through all of these things that are going to happen to you. But they didn't know that yet. All of that you can see, you and I can see, in the book of Acts after Pentecost being lived out where 3,000 plus began the church in Jerusalem. And many of those people stayed. Why were they staying? It was the only church. Can you imagine that? One church in one place. They go home. What do they got? They don't have this. They don't see the tongues of fire. They're not all these gifts that are exploding in people's lives to, to substantiate this new uh, covenant. No one wants to leave. It's like many of you after a Sunday service, and you're like, duck, duck, duck. <laughs> Just, you're the last one out, turn the lights off. That's okay. Right? They're so enthralled, they don't want to leave, so they stayed. Well, what do you do with that kind of people? I mean, they've got to be living somewhere. So the people in Jerusalem, they're opening up their houses. They're feeding them. They're selling their property. You see all of that through the book of Acts. You don't give up your family. In other words, Jesus is saying, you get a greater family. In fact, some of you, the gospel has, in fact, separated your family on this earth, your earthly family, which, by the way, Jesus said was going to happen. If you make a note, Matthew chapter 10, verse 35. He let us know that ahead of time. And some of you have had that experience. You've come to Christ. And the rest of your family or some of your family members aren't extremely happy about that. It causes tension, especially this time of year, does it not? Here's the second thing you've gained. Matthew, you have to go to Matthew chapter 19 for this account because Mark doesn't give us this. But in Matthew uh, chapter 19, specifically to the disciples, Jesus says, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel when... Jesus takes his throne. He's talking about the millennial millennial kingdom. When he returns to set up his kingdom, you, 12, get 12 thrones to sit on, and you will be judging the nations. There's going to be a renewal. In other words, the regeneration of the earth, a time of refreshing that Acts chapter 3 talks about, the thousand-year reign that Revelation talks about, spiritual renovation or regeneration that Titus 3.5 talks about. That's that section. It's the here and now for the church where we have this fellowship, where we share needs, where we support each other. But there's also this kingdom that's coming. You're going to get that as well. It's why you can sing joy to the world, peace on a good, uh, uh, earth, goodwill toward men. The curse of sin is gone. Satan is bound. It will be the impossible, the unimaginable come to life because God is the one who's saying it. That's the hope that you and I have as Christians. Now, to be clear, the 12 apostles will be on their thrones. You and I don't get those 12 because there's only 12. (laughs) They're not for you, but we get to be a part of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, really, you still think everything is, you've left everything? Is that enough for you? But wait, there's more. Ha, you wonder where all those infomercials got that stuff. There's nothing new under the sun. Come on. Third, you get eternal life at the end of verse 30. 
eternal life. All of heaven's glories, nothing that the world can offer you today. What will it profit you, Jesus said, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? It's a rhetorical question. You get nothing. Who's the, I mean, you pick whoever that is for you. I think, you know, Elon Musk is probably the wealthiest person in the world. Good on him. Whatever. In 50 years or less, when he is no longer a living, breathing person, what's he going to do with it all? Absolutely nothing. Oh, there'll be stuff that you remembered him by, and it'll all, whatever, you know, get dispersed and things will happen. I get that. But he won't have any part of it. And that's Jesus' point. What is the point? Get everything you want in this life. Wonderful. Super. But in the end, you will stand before a just and holy God alone. Just you. What will it gain you then? Absolutely nothing. And lastly, what's tucked away and what gets missed and all those amazing, incomprehensible human, you know, just the, the, the complete understanding when you try to wrap your head around what Jesus is saying, what you're getting, this is what you get. This is what you're going to look forward to. It's, it's so amazing that your human mind can't imagine. I mean, there's, there's no possible way for you to understand these glories until you get there. Scripture makes that clear. But what's parked right in the middle of all that? Persecutions. That's what he says. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children with persecutions. Huh. Why is that there? There's any number of reasons, none of which I'm sure you're going to like me to share with you, unless you're a true believer. So let me just give you a couple. It requires you to believe in the sufficiency of God's grace. It requires you to believe in the sufficiency of God's grace no matter what you're experiencing in this life. Do you trust him? In the persecutions? In the, trouble, the struggles that come? That he has the power and that power is perfected in your weakness and mine. Well, if you want to see God's power, what's the logical conclusion to that? What does Paul say? Oh, I'll just glory in all my weaknesses then. If that means you're going to show up, that is, again, in our American mind, that is so anti. I just, we just can't, it's, we really need to ponder just that. It's so hard for us to wrap our mind about, oh, does, this, does that mean I have to be weak in, in all of these things? The persecutions, why are the persecutions happening? Why did the persecution come in Jerusalem? Because they're all one church. What was the point Jesus said? Before, uh, as he's leaving, go into what? All the world. Right? The world is bigger than Jerusalem. <laughs> Do you look at persecutions and troubles like that always as, oh, God's mad at me. Something bad's happened. Or motivation that God can use that to glorify himself in what you're doing in your suffering. And that you could expect that suffering. Why? Because Jesus suffered on the cross for you. Right? What makes you think that we're going to get out of this life apart from Christ and his suffering? In some, in some level. It could be financial, it could be health, it could be all kinds of things. The loss of family members, friendships, all those things that happen in life. That his power is perfected in your weakness, it provides humility. Persecutions confirm your salvation, because why would you go through them otherwise? Right? 
Why would you put up with someone treating you, mistreating you, and all those things if Jesus isn't a part of your life, if his example isn't in the forefront of your mind? It recognizes the dependency that you have on God. And it could be even preparation for something greater in your life so you could handle it when it comes. Those are just a few. Finally, verse 31. The principle here is just super important for us to get. Many of you who are first will be last, the last will be first. Remember the disciples were just blathering about who is the greatest. What does Jesus mean? Everybody's going to be in perfect unity. It's the answer to his prayer in John 17. That they may be one as we are one. Equal. Listen, if you're first and you're last and you're last and you're first, what is that but unity? Oneness. You can see that in Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 20 of the workers. It didn't matter when they were hired, but at the end of the day, what did they all get? The same amount. They got paid the same wage. Listen, that should put an end to any of us here or anywhere else in the church of Christ to make the claim about how much you're doing for the kingdom of God. Oh, look at the crowds. Look what's happening. Look how they're responding and look at what we're doing. Listen, I would pray that you be extremely, extremely careful if you get caught in that way of thinking. It is God the one who causes the increase. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Our doings and offerings are just that. We offer them. There are no contingencies. There is no quid pro quo. There's no You in Christ just offer. And you let him be the one to do the blessing. You let him be the one that does the growth. Why? Because I can mess that up. I don't want false converts. I, don't, I want to do what Jesus is doing here. I want to make sure you understand and have the security and the knowledge and understanding, the confidence, the boldness that you are in Christ. Why? Because without that, you just melt. Just like the Israelites when they were standing in Goliath, belling at them all day long for a month. Where is your God? What do we do in culture today? We cave. I'm tired of caving. It's time to stand up and say, you may not like what I'm telling you, but I'm not going to argue with you either. So repent. Save yourself from this evil generation. I'll just stand on scripture and that'll be good. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 3 that all the workers, they aren't anything. That's the term he uses. It's God's goodness that gives us the growth. Jim Elliott was a missionary who was killed along with his four companions January of 1956 at the age of 28. They were martyred in an attempt to share the gospel by a prim, uh, to a primitive tribe in Ecuador. And he said this, here's a quote. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. Here's the last question. I told you there before. Do you believe that what Jesus is offering you is worth more than anything in this life? Nothing is impossible for God, not even your salvation. Hey, Jesus, thank you.
for your goodness and grace that saves, that marks us by your spirit, that determines the family in which we reside in, your kingdom. So Father, I pray this morning that we would truly recognize what Jesus has done, what we are about to celebrate this month, the means in which you went to save us, the impossibility of a virgin birth, to come truly God, truly man in human form, to represent who we are in our humanity all the way to the cross, to know that that gift was given perfectly for someone as wretched as me who would have no business even getting close to the cross. So Father, thank you for doing the impossible. Thank you for giving us the hope that comes through the work that you've done by your saving grace. God, show us your mercy and grace today in Jesus' name.